American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. The Now and Then podcast series is a collection of conversations with scholars and ASHP staff members on topics in history. Hi, I'm Andrea Addis Vasquez with Penny Bender, my colleague at the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning. We're at the CUNY Graduate Center on March 4th, 2011, interviewing Lisandro Perez, who is a professor and the chair of the Department of Latin American and Latina Latino Studies at CUNY's John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Lisandro has been researching Cuban history for decades, specifically Cubans in New York in the 19th century. He recently came to our attention as one of the consultants on the impressive exhibit at the Museo del Barrio called Nueva York, 1613-1945. to Perhaps we can begin by asking you to tell us about your background and how you came to this research topic. Well, I'm of Cuban background. I was born in uh, Havana uh, 10 years before the revolution. Uh, my parents decided to leave Cuba in 1960, and so I've lived most of my life in Florida. Uh, I was most recently on the faculty at Florida International University, and I'm now in New York, at, as, uh, as you indicated, at John Jay College. I'm very glad to be here. I've been researching uh, the Cuban presence in New York uh, during the 19th century. Uh, maybe I'll move on later to the 20th century, but the 19th century has managed to keep me occupied uh, for several years now. and. Uh, I'm actually posing as a historian. Uh, my background is as a sociologist, uh, although I have done work in history before. I was hoping some historian would take on uh, the Cuban community in New York in the 19th century because it's a very important uh, community, uh, both for, I think, uh, not only Cuban history, but indeed for New York history. Uh, but no one has stepped up yet, and so I uh, decided some years ago, with the help of a uh, fellowship at the Coleman Center, for scholars and writers of the New York Public Library. Uh, they generously gave me support, and I was there for a year and was able to mine their very extensive resources that they have on uh, New York history, as well as other collections around the city. Uh, and that's how I came about it, actually, is a topic that, uh, that I long had postponed. Most of my work has been on the Cuban community in the U.S. in modern times, that is, since 1959. Mm. But I felt that this was a, a topic that uh, was uh, sort of begging to be researched. Because when we think of immigrants in New York City in the 19th century, we don't usually think about Cubans. And you say that they have a very important role at, in the 19th century. So can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Well, generally, sometimes when we talk about immigration history, there is the weight of demography in the sense that we generally tend to talk a lot about uh, the more numerous groups. Um, but the Cuban presence in, in the ni in 19th century in New York was actually very important, uh, as I mentioned before, for Cuban history. But also it was, it was larger than we would expect. The, the, um, if we look at the censuses, uh, which count, of course, the population, the, high year, uh, the highest year uh, for the Cuban community was 1870. And at that time, there were uh, 3,000 Cuban-born persons. Uh, that doesn't include, for example, children they might have had here or persons they might have married who were not Cuban, but Cuban-born persons in what are now the five boroughs uh, in that year, in 1870. And that's actually, I think, a, a, a substantial amount more than you would expect. It was far and above the largest Latin American or Spanish-speaking group in the city. And uh, sometimes, again, people uh, assume 
that because other groups are now much more numerous in the 20th century that this has always been true. But uh, the 19th century story uh, in New York in terms of a Latin American presence is largely a Cuban and Spanish story, uh, way before it was a Puerto Rican or Dominican story. And of course, the Puerto Rican migration really starts uh, early in the 20th century. So can you talk a little bit about why these Cubans came to New York in these years? Well, uh, it, it, the story starts, as most New York stories, with a port. And as most uh, Cuban stories, it starts with sugar. And uh, it was at the beginning, during Cuba's, at the beginning of the, of the uh, uh, 19th century, when uh, Cuba was in the midst of a sugar revolution, a sugar boom that transformed the island. Uh, prior to that time, Cuba produced sugar, but it was not until the Haitian uh, Revolution and when the price of sugar went up uh, that really uh, the Cuban, the Cuban uh, Cubans started going into large-scale sugar production. And that meant they brought in a lot more slaves into Cuba. That means they, the island really was transformed into almost the beginnings of a, of a large sugar plantation, similar to the English and French colonies of the Caribbean. Uh, that sugar was not sold in Spain. That sugar was sold largely in New York. And the reason was that it, it was here that you had the center really of refineries uh, in all of the United States. It was here that the first refinery opened in the United States, and uh, by the 18, middle of the 1800s, there were a dozen refineries operating in both Manhattan and in Brooklyn. The sugar producers in Cuba would ship their sugar here. Uh, there were commission agents here who were called counting houses who received that sugar and sold it in commission, and where it was refined uh, because the Cuban product was actually a, a kind of a caked sort of what was called muscovado, which was a, a caked sort of brown sugar and in order to really turn a profit, you had to refine it. And, and so the sugar refineries here bought that sugar, which meant that these Cuban planters had accounts here with their commission agents. And that meant also that then with those accounts here, they bought very heavily things that they wanted for their homes, for their mills. They sent their children here to be educated. And so it was that sugar connection that then brought this tremendous commerce with Cuba. It was actually known as the Cuba trade. And that Cuba trade actually came to occupy the fourth or fifth spot in total U.S. trade in the middle of the 19th century. It was very significant. And a lot of people in New York made a lot of money out of it. Uh, and, and so that's the initial connection. Uh, that's why, for example, then you started getting a lot of the activists in favor of Cuban separatism uh, because New York in many ways was the, short, was the shortest distance to Cuba, not in, not in actual geographic terms, but in terms of communication. Uh, it was where you could count on a ship arriving from Cuba just about every day or a ship going to Cuba just about every day. So those who were exiled from Cuba, those who were writers, intellectuals, uh, 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 activists for Cuban separatism, uh, saw New York as the place uh, to establish their operations. Okay, so you're starting to touch on the, uh, an interesting issue here that you know, the people who came were often people who wanted independence from Spain. And can you just talk a little bit about, you know, kind of who these people were and what they did when they got here? New York was actually a, 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 the principal stage, let's say, outside of Cuba for uh, separatist activities. And I say separatist rather than independence because initially uh, some of the most discernible activities that took place here had to do with an, the annexationist movement, which actually was not really a Cuban independence movement, strictly speaking, but was a, a movement essentially to annex Cuba to the U.S., and of course, that had the support at a time that in the uh, late 1840s, early 1850s, had the support 
of Southern planters uh, and others who wanted, obviously, to annex a slave state, as, in fact, Cuba was. You mentioned the frequency with which Cubans came and left New York. I was wondering about the influence of New York on Cuba and the influence of Cubans on New York. And can you talk about the relationship between Cubans and other groups in New York's Spanish-speaking community? Well, being the largest group, certainly by 1870, if not before, uh, the Cubans, in fact, were the center of a uh, Spanish-speaking community. That also brought uh, some Puerto Rican separatists and, and, and people thinking about Puerto Rican independence, uh, and they had a lot of connections w with them. Um, there were, for example, literary societies that were established. Uh, they were very active. And again, all this frequently gets lost a bit uh, because we tend to emphasize the history of the European groups, and correctly so, because again, the numbers of European immigrants at this time was much larger. But these were actually chapters uh, in a history that were not just New York history and not just the history of, of Cubans in New York, but the history of, in many ways, Latin American nation building at this time. Uh, Jose Marti, for example, uh, who's a figure that uh, is very important in the Cuban community, he actually arrives in 1880 and becomes really most active politically in the 1890s, is an individual who, through his writings here in New York and writing to especially newspapers in Latin America, gave Latin Americans a vision, in many ways, of the new century that was dawning. And, 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 and he wrote a great deal about all, all kinds of things about the U.S., about technological progress, about the inauguration of the Brooklyn Bridge, the Statue of Liberty, uh, about uh, political uh, events, about uh, crime and justice in the United States. And, and this helped usher in, in many ways, what was called the, the modernist sort of wave in, in, in Latin American literature and in ways of thinking. Ru uh, Ruben Darío, for example, the great Nicaraguan poet, always has said, always wrote that, that he was very influenced by Martí's chronicles from New York because it, it was almost like a, a view on another world. And it was a Latin American gaze, essentially, on what was going on in the U.S. And, and, the, and not just the U.S., but especially in New York, which, of course, at that time was pushing the envelope on modernity. That is, this was a city that, that in, in, indeed things were happening here first, and, and, in, and someone coming from a Spanish colony, uh, particularly in the 19th century, would have been simply amazed by the kinds of things that, that were happening in New York. In fact, this happened a lot, and, uh, and, and it started not just with Martí in the 1880s, but even before that, Cuban intellectuals who came and, and wrote and were, and, and, and were influenced by the kinds of trends, uh, modernization trends, and so forth that were happening. In my next question is about the class composition right. of mm -hmm. the Cubans who right. came to, to the United You know, is it not until much mm -hmm. later that that um, there's more variety? Because early on, it's pretty elite group, right? In the the early migration in the 1840s and 1850s, particularly those who were associated with annexationism and who were in largely sugar planters or tied to sugar interests, a lot of that migration was composed really of elites. And, and the beginnings of the Cuban community in New York were marked by a distinct uh, a predominance of elites, and especially the sugar planters that came, came here. Uh, the irony of that is that um, some of those planters, especially when they started settling permanently, somewhat permanently in New York, as happened in 1869, have to remember that in October of 1868, a war, the first war of independence breaks out in Cuba. And it was an all-out war, and people had to choose sides. And many of the, of the Cuban planters 
uh, were actually uh, terrorized uh, by the Spanish authorities and they had to leave. And of course they came to New York. This is where their money was. This is where their accounts were. This is where they sold sugar. Uh, so they came here and in many cases they came without knowing if they could return. So they came not as temporary businessmen or writers, or they came with their families to settle. And they brought with them, in many cases, their entire staff, if you will, house staff, and that included uh, even slaves uh, on what were house slaves. Uh, I've gone through the census records, and, and a lot of the source of information that I use, in fact, are the census records of the period. And if we look at the, uh, at the census of 1870, for example, where, of course, this is post-Civil War New York, where slavery is presumably not, not practiced in New York, these were families that uh, you see their census record, and there are domestic servants in the household who are listed as black when who have the same last name as the family, and in which you can reasonably conclude uh, that these are house slaves that they brought. So, uh, so at the same time that this was an elite migration, they were also they had also brought in um, uh, uh, slaves, former slaves. They even brought in, even if they weren't slaves, uh, house servants. There were, for example, uh, some of these households had uh, Chinese uh, workers. Who there was a significant Chinese migration to Cuba, and many came uh, with those families. It, it's not until somewhat later in the 1870s that uh, the Cuban community in New York starts really becoming much more diversified, because uh, because of the destruction of um, uh, that was taking place in Cuba during the war, uh, many of those uh, uh, who were engaged, for example, in the tobacco industry, a cigar craftsmen and so forth, uh, had to leave Cuba. So you started getting in the 1870s an, an influx of more working class Cubans, and particularly the predominance was for cigar manufacturers, that is for cigar workers who were skilled craftsmen. And of course, they came right into a city that, that really was the leading center for cigar manufacturing in the U.S. We have to remember this was really before Tampa opened in 1886. And, and uh, uh, one of the things that I have found fascinating is that still there hasn't been really a good history of the cigar industry in New York. Uh, if you go by the tobacco directories that were published at the time in the 1870s, 1880s, it almost seems like, it, particularly in downtown, the downtown area, you couldn't throw a stone without hitting a, a cigar or tobacco establishment of some sort. And there were, they were both large factories, and there were also what were called tenement factories, as well. Uh, and it was in that already uh, industry that had been established largely by German immigrants that the Cubans came in, and started working as cigar workers. So, from that time on, the the community becomes the Cuban community becomes much more heterogeneous. Also, many of those elites who came during the war eventually lost their, their money. They either went back to Cuba to try to reclaim their fortunes when the, when the war was over, and they were pretty unsuccessful at that, uh, or they stayed here and actually you know, um, uh, ran out of money. So you have, in many ways, the disappearance of that elite uh, after 1878, and then you have all these cigar workers coming in. So by the 1880s, the Cuban community here is much more, how, can, how shall we say, proletarian in its composition. And was it, was there one neighborhood? Was it a, or the or neighborhood? Ten, were all the Cubans in the same area? Or were Actually, they, it, it, it varies, uh, it varied quite a bit. Uh, the, when the elites came in, they, they lived, of course, in the more fashionable areas. Uh, for example, the, the entire area around Madison, around Madison Square Park became mm -hmm. popular. Also, the beginnings of uh, some elite areas going up the east side, and the 40s particularly, and so forth. Uh, there were some families that lived there. 
But the cigar workers, as most cigar workers in, uh, in New York, tended to live uh, much further downtown. Uh, some of the heaviest concentrations I found of where cigar workers lived uh, was in the area where that's now Soho and the West Village. They tended to, to live in, uh, in, in boarding houses in which most of the residents were cigar workers. Uh, and these were usually racially segregated, of course. Uh, at that time, Manhattan neighborhoods were not, the neighborhoods themselves were not very strictly segregated, but the boarding houses tended to be. So that black cigar workers, of which there were a growing number, tended to live, of course, with, with uh, in boarding houses that had predominantly black residents. And white cigar workers were, uh, lived similarly in the predominantly white uh, boarding houses. And is there much documentation about um, kind of the reception that these kind of more proletariat Cubans received when they came here? What there was their experience like? Were they discriminated against in any ways? Were were they kind of welcome in the city? Do you have any evidence or stories about it? Uh, actually, no. Except that that as usually happens, uh, mo- a lot of the stories that that one uh, is able to call out of the record uh, generally. Uh, there's not that many stories. It's always, always much more difficult to write the history, say, of working class people. They tend to leave sometimes less of a record. The elites are wonderful in that sense because they, they do all kinds of outlandish things and they, they hold big weddings and things like that and you can always sort of track their development. So it's always easier. And I tried to avoid the temptation of emphasizing the elites, but they, li- li- they leave a bigger historical footprint than do working class. The other way in which you can get in, and leave a record is through crime. And, uh, and it was interesting to me to pick up the stories of at least a couple of Cuban black cigar workers who got in trouble with the law and the way in which they were perceived by the New York uh, press and the way their stories were, were, uh, were written. And one of the, one of the things that, that's evident is that the, the press had a great deal to do, uh, had a great deal of difficulty in the intersection between nationality and race. Mm-hmm. They don't know really whether to s- describe someone who is who is, for example, uh, Cuban, who was identified as being Cuban, they were hesitant to, to describe him as Negro because the term Negro then was probably reserved for American blacks. So uh, there was this uh, one man who actually apparently was not a very dark skin, but uh, who was uh, actually apprehended, accused of uh, killing his father-in-law. And the press initially referred to him as a swarthy Spaniard. Uh, and from then on, it, w- it was very, it's very interesting to see uh, the press handling the, this intersection of race and nationality. Uh, and of course, you know, as, as one can see from the, the period, there was always a, 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 a kind of assumption of guilt and so forth because of the person's race. And how about the women who came at the different periods? Actually, uh, the women were tended to be at the uh, polar ends of the social uh, stratification scale, uh, in the sense that they tended not to be cigar workers. And if they were essentially, if they were working and they were of working class, they tended to be laundresses. Uh, some of them had actually boarding houses, but they were laundresses. I, I suspect that many of those women, and many of them were uh, of African descent, um, were actually uh, that ha- they had arrived perhaps with their fam- with the, with the the families that had owned them essentially in Cuba when they were slaves, and then of course here decided that there were other opportunities that didn't have to stay in the household, because I, I, there are a fairly large number of black women, black Cuban women, who actually made their occupation from laundering and from domestic work, in some way. The only uh, occupation that women occupied that that um, that might be 
said to be somewhat working class or, or, or skilled, let's say, was seamstress. And there were a number of those as well. And then, of course, at the other end, you have the women of elite families who came. And there were a couple of examples of some of those, uh, of some of those women who were very politically active. In fact, there was one particular woman, Emilia Casanova, who was married to Cirilo Villaverde, and they had arrived in the 1850s to New York. They had been longtime residents. They actually both died within a couple of years of each other in the middle of the 1890s. So they lived here for more than 40 years. And she was not only a very active person in favor of Cuban independence here, she was extremely strident in her, in her um, uh, writings and so forth. Uh, she tended to berate a lot of the um, uh, exiles here that were elites, and she, f that she felt that they weren't doing enough for the cause of Cuban independence because they were enjoying their you know, n nice life here in New York, and uh, he, he said that they were uh, people who were constantly just uh, driving around town in their fine carriages. Because, in fact, a lot of those elites who did come uh, in 1869, they had money here, and they, they lived uh, a very expansive life while there were Cubans dying in Cuba. Mm -hmm. So this woman was a particularly, a particularly a thorn on their side, uh, and she arranged for mass meetings, and she wrote in the newspapers and so forth, constantly calling everyone to action especially those who, uh, who uh, in her words, uh, all they do is, is, is live the high life in New York and go around eating pastries. <laughs> she called them in Spanish the pastry eaters. <laughs> so she was a very, she was a, a very, a very adamant uh, uh, sort of defender of Cuban independence. And so getting back to your early point about the person coming as an enslaved mm -hmm. person or a woman and, and your sources, mm -hmm. um, so how much do you actually have about that kind of a story? And what do, how are you piecing together that kind of story? Well, my instinct, uh, being a sociologist, uh, my instinct was, at, was to approach, first of all, the censuses. Actually, I was trained in demography and, uh, and to use the censuses. So my, my interest in... In, in Cuban New York, originally from the fact that I wanted to essentially understand the community, not just the political activism uh, or the texts that were being written by the political actors. A lot of that history that had been written before had to do with, again, the organizations that arose uh, for Cuban independence or Cuban separatism, uh, the newspapers that were published here in New York, and all of that was fine, but I wanted to get a sense it almost seemed from these histories that these people did not even live in the city. Uh, that is, that they published these newspapers, they were engaged in these political activities, but you know they did w walk the sidewalks of this city. They lived in this city, and I wanted to find out something about where they lived, uh, what uh, type of, uh, and, and more broadly, too, uh, what was the composition of this community uh, that wasn't just the known political elites. So my approach was to try to reconstruct the community at various points in time, particularly when the decennial census were taken, uh, and see what there was from the decennial census. No matter how imperfect that source of data was, it now becomes possible, particularly through the various um, uh, search engines that do genealogical research, to actually uh, do that. It's an imperfect uh, source, but. But nevertheless, it gave me a sense of the outlines, and it was interesting to find um, many prominent Cubans here. For example, in, in, eight, in the 1870 census, is by far the most fascinating because um, if, if you look at the, at the list of who was the Havana elite in Cuba in 1867-68, most of whom were reformists, these were the Havana elites, who tried to reform the Spanish regime in Cuba. 
uh, and they even published a newspaper in Cuba, and we know who they were. You can, I, I can show you a table where I can, I have placed them in New York in 1870, literally every one of them. And I can tell you where every one of them lived. That is, they literally just moved here. Uh, and so part of this whole thing was reconstructing the community because all those political activities took place in a certain space here. And it was important to understand the community. For example, another example of this was, it's been frequently said that, that Jose Marti had been brilliant, and he was actually, at having started his movement from the grassroots, which was very different. He started his movement for Cuban independence in 1892 from the grassroots up. Uh, well, you have to understand the community in which he lived. Marti, in 1892, still, although he lived here for many years, was an outsider to the Cuban community. He had not been a veteran of the war. He hadn't fought in any war. He was just this poet, this writer that everyone thought had these nice words to say, but what had he done for Cuban independence? So you had here a lot of veterans, a lot of widows from the, from the war from 1868 to 1878 who didn't give him any legitimacy. So he, it was difficult for him to start the movement right, from essentially the top down, as had always been done. He had to start from the bottom up, particularly since he had a gift for oratory, for writing. So he went to Tampa, he went to Key West, he went to the cigar factories in New York, and he built the movement from the cigar workers up. Well, unless you understand the community he lived in, that is, the fact that he was basically an outsider to the elites and you understand the composition of the community, you don't appreciate why it was that he started the movement that way. So what happens to Cuban migration with the Spanish-Cuban-American War and at the end of 1898? Does the migration patterns change after um, you know, Spain is kicked out? And so? Well, one of the things that happens uh, and, and it happened not so much in, in 1898 as it happened uh, in 1902 uh, when, of course, the U.S. leaves uh, Cuba and essentially uh, gives the Cubans a government um, uh, in 1902, is that many of those who lived here went back. Um, I think they did not go back, many of them did not go back earlier, let's say after Spain left in 1899, because actually Spain, Spain cedes Cuba to the U.S. on January 1st, 1899, officially. Uh, so there was that whole period from 1899, 1900, 1901, until May 20th of 1902 when the U.S. occupied Cuba. I think there was some uncertainty, uncertainty about the future of Cuba, uh, that many of them actually who, who lived here did not return. But when they did return, and many of them did, one of the things that strikes, that was very striking, that struck me uh, looking at this, is how they took care to make sure that what they had done here for Cuban independence, they took back to Cuba. For example, uh, all of the files of the Partido Revolucionario Cubano, which was the Cuban Revolutionary Party here that Martí started, all those files are in Cuba mm -hmm. because you know they carted them off and they said, this belongs in Cuba. We want to make sure. There was actually an association of emigrants, as it was called, emigrados cubanos in Cuba in the early part of the, of the 20th century, whose the purpose was to make sure nobody forgot all the things that they did here. Presumably, the desk that Martí had on Front Street in his office was carted off and sent to Cuba, and it's now in the museum, his museum, which was his uh, birthplace in Cuba. So there was this, 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 this notion of trying to retain the record of what was done here. One of the uh, most uh, noticeable figures that returned was an individual by the name of Nestor Ponce de Leon. Nestor Ponce de Leon arrived as a fairly young man in um, 1869, along with that migration, that exodus in 1869, and he was a lawyer in Cuba, but instead of being a lawyer here, 
he de dedicated himself to his real interests, which were books. He was a bibliophile, and he opened a Spanish-language bookstore that existed for many years uh, near Union Square, uh, and uh, Martí went there frequently. It was both a, a, a bookstore and a stationery store. Well, this is the man who then, in 1902, becomes the head of Cuba's National Archives. Mm -hmm. You see, that is, they, they did go back and they occupied positions. Uh, the first president of Cuba, of course, in, in Agri in 1902, had been Tomás Estrada Palma, who succeeded José Martí as the head of the Cuban Revolutionary Party here in New York. And he was a man who had also left in 1869-1870. And when he meets Martí in the 1890s, he's running a boys' boarding school in the Hudson Valley. And that is the individual who becomes the first president of Cuba. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the New York connection uh, uh, with the first Cuban government and the fact that many of these people did return um, uh, is very evident. Now, the other side of the coin, if I may, is that there, the Cubans who tended to stay, and not only tended to stay when the war was over in 1878, but also when the other war was over in 1898, were Cubans or Cuban families that when they brought money in 1869, uh, instead of essentially living off of that money, they invested it. And there were a number of Cuban families who had invested very heavily in New York real estate. Um, well, after, of course, during the Cuban Republic, which starts in, in 1902, the, this relation between the U.S. and Cuba is fundamentally very different uh, because uh, it had been, during the 19th century, a place that had been marked, that is the Cuban community in New York, had been marked by uh, this you know, struggle for independence from Spain. And that had, was a principal theme of this. This was now gone, obviously. And it was replaced, of course, by this very close relationship with the U.S., uh, a relationship uh, that was in many ways institutionalized by the Platt Amendment, which of course had been placed in the Cuban Constitution uh, by the U.S. government as a way of guaranteeing that Cuba would not be fully independent even though they were getting a government and they put some restrictions on the range of authority of a Cuban government. But it also meant from a business perspective, for example, that the stability in Cuba was actually guaranteed by the U.S. government. And so you started getting this tremendous flow back and forth. Uh, again, not so much of exiles or, or, or people coming here fleeing uh, Cuba, but of a two-way traffic of uh, businessmen here in the U.S. going to Cuba to make investments, uh, many Cubans coming here uh, to um, uh, get an education, as had happened before, but also uh, you know, because of business connections. This was a time in which there was an expansion of U.S. economic interest in Cuba, especially in the 1910s and 1920s. And a barometer of that was the movement uh, that took place back and forth. I have I, grew up with stories of that sort of movement uh, because actually my grandfather um, uh, was an exporter of Cuban leaf tobacco, and he sold all of his Cuban leaf tobacco to the General Cigar Company which had headquarters here in New York. So my grandfather, even though he knew no English at all, uh, during the 1920s and 1930s, continually came to New York. Mm -hmm. And eventually he, he sent my father and my father's brothers here to study in New York. That's very surprising. Um, so I, I wonder how, if you've given any thought to how this new scholarship that you're writing and uh, researching about Cubans, you see incorporated into the way this subject is taught at, at either in high schools or colleges, or um, how would this change 
um, the way Latino studies or New York studies or Cuban studies has been has been taught in the past. I think there's a very important role for history in looking at Latino history in the United States and, and well, obviously, of looking at Latino history in the United States, but the importance of looking at history uh, uh, in terms of Latinos in the U.S. Frequently, uh, a great deal of what's we, what's written about Latinos in the U.S. reinforces the notion that it is a fairly recent group to the U.S. And in many ways, you know, that's true. You know, as if you look at, at the demographics of this, particularly with the impact of the 1965 uh, Immigration Act, which allowed so many people from Latin America and from Asia as well to come in, and that we have the growth of new Latin American populations, especially in New York, in, in the last 20, 30 years, that this is a relatively recent sort of phenomena. And again, demographically, one can't argue with that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a long history in place. And I think that's important because um, I, I, I place myself in the position of, of a uh, student in New York uh, who is from a Latino background, in fact, being taught New York history as being, you know, essentially the history of European immigration and what the Dutch did and so forth. Uh, and not having a sense that this city, that, that your history is also part of this city's history. Uh, this came to me very clearly, and I spoke to a group of uh, school children from Bensonhurst, they were eighth graders, about my research, and uh, a lot of them were Latinos, and I did a little bit of research on where the school was located, and I found out that it actually lived only one block, or two blocks, one w where Jose Marti had lived for several years in mm -hmm. Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I, I, I told them this whole history, and they were, of course, yawning a little bit, but then I said, here's, <laughs> here's, where, here's where Jose Marti lived in Brooklyn for a while. Of course, I didn't recognize the building because the building's not there. I said, here's what it looks like now. And it was, of course, a playground that was only about two blocks from their school, and they all jumped up and, and recognized that's a VR school. That is, the idea that people who speak the language of their parents lived in this city more than 100 years ago, who walked these sidewalks, is an extremely valuable lesson, that this isn't just the city of these other people who presumably are the ones that made history, but that people who speak the same language, who come from the same countries as your father or mother, actually did, in fact, live in this city, and that history is part of their history. That's a wonderful point to make yeah, uh, in closing. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for this uh, fabulous interview. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you.